Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Paediatric Emergencies Podcast. So I was recently asked to give a talk at a local meeting on waiting for the retrieval team, where I give some of my key pearls on the things you should do and things you should avoid doing while waiting for the retrieval team to arrive when you've got a critically ill child. So that talk's very relevant to the audience of this podcast, so I'm going to give this talk again today and record it and make it available as a podcast. So if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll probably have heard a lot of the things I'm going to say today in previous podcasts. But the reason I'm repeating them again is because they're important. And certainly hearing them again or getting a slightly different take on some of the points I've already covered will be useful. Okay, so let's get on with the talk. So like I mentioned, I'm going to talk today about the waiting for the retrieval team period. And I'm going to give you some of the key pearls that I think are important and things that you should be doing and things you should be avoiding doing. And how have I picked these? Importantly, I'm picking these from things I see people doing wrongly again and again and again. Or it may be rare things that people do wrongly but they can have absolutely disastrous consequences. So that's why I'm choosing the things that I'm going to talk about today. So I'm a paediatric intensivist, so when I have a problem, I approach it with an A, B, C, D, E system. And I'm going to approach this talk in a similar manner, starting off with the airway. So my first tip when it comes to managing the airway of a critically ill child would be to use a video laryngoscope for the intubation. And that won't come as a shock to anybody who's familiar with me. They'll know that I'm a big fan of video laryngoscopes. And part of the reason I'm saying this is that it's not that uncommon that there's some difficulty with intubating small babies in district general hospitals. And it's not that we've got lots of small babies who have difficult airways. In general, the problem is it's the person carrying out the intubation isn't as familiar with the technique needed with direct laryngoscopy in small babies. And in general, there's a different technique that they would need to use for that small baby. They'd have to use a straight blade and lift the epiglottis directly, compared to using the curved blade that they're familiar with that slides in behind the vallecula and lifts the epiglottis. And if you were to use a video laryngoscope that had a traditional shaped Macintosh blade, you can generally use the same technique that you use in adults. You can slide this blade nicely into the vallecula and in general you will have a good view that allows you to intubate the baby in exactly the same way as you would an adult, albeit everything is slightly smaller. So my advice would be to practice using a video laryngoscope that you can use from adults all the way down to small neonates. Practice it in your adult patients so that you're comfortable using it and then next time you have a small baby to intubate you'll be able to use exactly the same technique as you've been using in your normal adult patients. And in fact, you'll probably find the intubation really straightforward to do. The next point I want to make about intubation is who is actually the best person to do the intubation. And in general, in the UK, this is going to be the anaesthetist. It falls to them first to carry out the intubation. But as I mentioned, um, a lot of the anaesthetists who carry out these intubations will maybe only intubate one or two neonates over the course of a year. But the consultant paediatrician who's standing in the corner may actually intubate many more neonates over that year and have done so every year of their career. And they actually may be the best person 
to do the intubation. So I do think it is worth that discussion at the start, um, looking at everybody's skill set. And even if the anaesthetist is going to do it first, and in most cases that's the way it will work, remembering that the paediatrician is a very good backup person should the intubation not go smoothly. And in fact, in a number of the cases I've gone out to where there has been some difficulty in the intubation, in a number of them, the paediatrician has actually successfully done the intubation when the anaesthetist has struggled with it. And that has been nearly always in small neonates for a similar reason. So I think if you use a video laryngoscope, you'll probably not get into that issue in the first place. But I think as a second backup, remember the paediatrician is a very good backup to the anaesthetist. And if you are a paediatrician listening to this, be ready to put yourself forward. Um, if you find the anaesthetist struggling with the intubation or if you're an anaesthetist, remember to ask your paediatric colleagues for some help. Okay, so moving on to a couple of pointers on the endotracheal tube that you're going to put in. And I think the first key thing is that, providing it's not contraindicated, I would strongly recommend that you put a microcuffed endotracheal tube in. And to run over the contraindications, they are preterm infants or infants who have a weight of less than 3 kilos. But in everybody else, I would strongly recommend a microcuff tube. Now, the reason I'm saying microcuff tube rather than cuff tube is that a lot of the older cuff tubes have a lot of major faults in them. And a lot of them are actually quite dangerous. The cuffs seal at only extremely high pressures and the depth markers on the tubes are highly inaccurate. Um, often, if you put the tube into the depth marker, you can almost guarantee the tip of the tube is going to be at least at the carina, if not in the right main bronchus. Whereas we know the microcuff tube is designed for the paediatric airway, and I've always found them to be fairly accurate. Now, the reason I'm saying cuff tube is that you want to intubate a critically ill child once. You do not want to put an uncuffed tube in, find there's a leak, and then have to go back and re-intubate the patient. You've got lots of other jobs that you need to do when you've got a sick child, and carrying out multiple intubations for a cuff leak is not one of the things you want to be doing. And even if you don't have a problem with that child in the District General Hospital, and I bring them back to the unit with an uncuffed tube in, they might ventilate okay initially. But if they get sick and their chest goes off, and suddenly the pressures are having to go up to deliver the same tidal volumes, and a leak appears, I'm then going to have to change the tube at that point. And that's often a point where the child is unstable, where they're in a lot of oxygen, and they're not going to tolerate the tube change particularly well. Whereas, if you had put a cuff tube in at the start, I wouldn't be needing to change the tube in the first place. And probably, actually, if we had the cuff and the seal and were able to deliver a decent peep, I mightn't be into the trouble with the ventilation that I was in at that moment. So again, I have a whole separate podcast on the use of cuff tubes in critically ill children, but my summary of it is, provided it's not contraindicated, please put a microcuff tube in. The next point when it comes to tubes is there's certainly um, some areas um, in the UK, Northern Ireland's one of them, where nasal tubes are preferred. But in general, if you're intubating a critically ill child, the fastest way to secure the airway is with an oral tube. And I think everybody agrees with that. Um, outside neonatal units, I don't think there's anywhere, certainly that I'm aware of, where critically ill children 
are intubated primarily with a nasal tube. Most people are securing the airway with an oral tube initially and then swapping over to a nasal tube if the child's stable enough. My recommendation would be just don't get yourself into trouble. If you've put your oral tube down, leave it oral. There's no need for you to get yourself into trouble trying to switch it over to a nasal tube. And in fact, over the years, I have seen, I've gone out to pick some kids up that were highly unstable, and I've found them with nasal tubes in. And already I've just lost all confidence in the team looking after that patient. The child may have had a cardiac arrest. They may be profoundly hypotensive on peripheral vasoactive drugs. And for somebody to have decided that it was a good idea to take a perfectly good oral tube out and replace it with a nasal tube means they have absolutely no insight into how sick that child is or the risks they're putting the child through. So in general, to avoid getting yourself into any trouble, I think once you've got the initial intubation done, you've got lots of other things to get on with. Leave your tube oral. And if we want to change it, we will happily change it when we get the kid back to the intensive care unit. Okay, final point on tubes. So in general, we're looking for a tube that's in the right place and that's adequately secure. And in the right place, in general, I mean sort of midway between the clavicles and the carina on chest x-ray. So if you've got a tube that's not in the right place, it's, if it's above the clavicles or just about touching the carina, don't leave it for us until we arrive to decide if we are happy or not with it. You're much better to get the tube adjusted, get another chest x-ray, make sure it's adequately secure before we arrive, because in general we are going to want the tube moved. We're not going to be happy going to the back of an ambulance with a tube that's not right. And we're just going to waste a lot of time in doing that. Whereas if that can all be done before we arrive, it means we can spend less time with you and everybody can get back to what they need to be doing much more quickly. When it comes to securing the tubes, again, that varies from region to region. Everybody thinks their way of securing the tubes is the best way. If you don't have your own method, um, on the Pediatric Emergencies website, under the intubation course, we've got some videos um, showing you how to tape an endotracheal tube. So you can learn from that and develop that as your method if you don't currently have one. Okay, so the final point I want to make onto the airway before we go on to the breathing is related to one specific condition, and that is asthma. And the point I want to make is, please do not intubate an asthmatic unless they absolutely need it. And the reason I'm saying this is, there's actually a very high risk of the child dying if you intubate them. And that isn't something that everybody recognises. And certainly over the years, I've had a number of phone calls to say, we're taking this asthmatic off the theatre to intubate them without having had a discussion with a paediatric intensivist. And actually, when we have discussed the case, there's numerous other treatments that could have been tried. And in fact, when we did try them in a number of the cases, they've actually turned the child around and they haven't needed intubation. Because once you intubate an asthmatic, if I'm looking after them, I know I'm not leaving that child's bed space for the rest of my shift. I'm going to struggle. There's going to be high pressures, there's going to be air trapping, there's going to be episodes of hypotension. They are not a nice patient to manage on a ventilator. And if there's any way you can avoid that, you should really try and avoid it. Obviously there is patients with asthma who do need intubated. And certainly if you've got a patient in extremis, 
by all means get on and get them intubated, but expect a struggle around that intubation period. And I have done a separate podcast on asthma, on the things you should be watching for, and the things you should be doing to keep that child safe around that period and in the immediate um, period following intubation. However, if it's not an absolute emergency, please pick up the phone and have a conversation with us about whether intubation is or isn't appropriate in your case or whether there's any other therapeutic options you can try to avoid intubation because that's exactly what I would be doing if I was reviewing that child in front of me. I would not be rushing in to intubate while there's any other option we could try unless it was absolutely called for. And I can't stress this enough. It's one condition that I'm really worried about intubating. So please don't do it unless you absolutely have to. Okay, moving on to the breathing. And I think one of the common preventable problems with the breathing can be solved by suctioning the endotracheal tube out immediately following intubation. Most of the times we're intubating critically ill children, they are going to have secretions in their airway and secretions in their chest. And given the children have quite narrow, small airways, it doesn't take very much in terms of secretions to make both oxygenation and ventilation very difficult. So it's one of the first things I'll often do after I intubate a child is go down with a suction catheter. And if that doesn't clear the chest, we'll put a bit of saline down the tube, we'll do some saline bagging and some suction. And if that doesn't clear things, I'm going to get the physiotherapist in to see the child because this is really, really important. But you will be absolutely surprised the number of times I come out to pick a child up who's already on high pressures, who's on a high oxygen requirement, and I'll ask the question, have you suctioned the endotracheal tube? And you'll be surprised the number of times the answer is no. Or quite often, if the answer is yes, the tube has been suctioned, I'll do a saline suction myself, and very, very quickly, the oxygenation and the ventilation will improve. So remember to do it, and if this isn't something you're familiar with doing, get your physiotherapist to show you how it's done, because it's absolutely vital to do, particularly in small babies with bronchiolitis, um, as we're experiencing now over the winter. Okay, so the next key point is don't forget to increase your PEEP when you're struggling to oxygenate a critically unwell child. So hopefully you'll have already have suctioned out the endotracheal tube, you'll already have got an x-ray to show that your tube is adequately positioned. But if you're still struggling with oxygenation, don't forget to increase the PEEP. Again, you'll be surprised the number of times we go out to pick a kid up in 80-90% oxygen, but the PEEP is still at 5. PEEP needs to be incrementally increased um, if you're not oxygenating well. Because quite often just a slight increase in the PEEP will make a big difference. And in fact, if you've got significant collapse consolidation on a chest x-ray, you want to start with a moderate level of PEEP and try and get that recruited. Because again, we'll be much happier taking the kid in the back of the ambulance if they're well oxygenated. And you shouldn't be waiting until we arrive to start that re-recruitment process. Um, Part of the issue with PEEP, I think, comes, there's a common misconception taught that high PEEP is bad for you. And people worry that high PEEP causes pneumothoraces. They worry that high PEEP um, causes impaired venous return to the heart and cardiovascular instability. But what is important is that you give the patient in front of you the right amount of PEEP for them. And 
a patient who has bad lungs may need what in your book is a high level of PEEP, but that level of PEEP may be completely appropriate for them. And what would be inappropriate for that patient would be putting them on what you class as a normal level of PEEP, because you need to reinflate the patient's lungs. So you need to titrate the PEEP to the patient in front of you. What you're trying to do in each patient is hold their lungs open at the end of expiration, preventing them collapse. You may want to also re-recruit areas of the lungs that have collapsed. And the amount of PEEP you need to give each patient will vary depending on the compliance of the lungs. So you can't follow a fixed rule that this is the standard amount of PEEP we give all patients. You have to adjust what you're doing depending on the patient in front of you. And this is really important. So don't forget to turn the PEEP up when your patient isn't oxygenating well. Okay, another really big problem with small children in district general hospitals is dead space. And in general, that is either using a ventilator that isn't appropriate for the size of the child or adding additional things into the circuit which significantly increases the dead space. So when it comes to ventilators and anaesthetic machines, you should be working this out in advance. You need to know what each ventilator you're using, um, what age groups it can be used in, what circuits you should be using for each of them depending on the age or weight of your patient. Again, we come out as a transport team. We have two different ventilators. We have one for smaller infants and one for older children. And if we were to put a small neonate on our bigger ventilator, they wouldn't ventilate at all well, given the amount of dead space. The ventilator would basically just be ventilating the circuit and the patient would receive very little of the ventilation. But this is still a common mistake that's made time and time again. Put a small baby on a ventilator that's not designed for them. So they don't ventilate because of the dead space. So importantly, if you have a child on a ventilator that's not ventilating well, take them off and handbag them. And if things are better, then equipment is probably the cause of your problem. Don't leave them on the ventilator. You can manage with handbagging while you're sorting out the problem. So even if you have the child on the right ventilator, you can make it difficult and in some situations impossible for them to ventilate by adding either the wrong items into the circuit or adding unnecessary items into the circuit. And one of the things I'm thinking about in particular is filters. Again, it's important you make sure you've got the right size of filter for your patient. And I covered a lot of this in a talk I did at the Waiting for the Retrieval Team conference last year, and that lecture is online on the Pediatric Emergencies website. Um, certainly, if you were using a neonatal filter, um, I found in some of the testing I did, the dead space was 7.8 mils. If in that same patient you had mistakenly used an adult filter, the dead space is 26.6 mils. A massive difference. So for a 3 kilo neonate who's going to have a tidal volume of 15 mils, adding in a filter, which is a dead space of 26 mils, is going to make it almost impossible for you to ventilate them on that circuit unless you dial up really excessive tidal volumes. Another thing that's often added in is an angle piece. Again, it's surprisingly got a lot of dead space, and certainly when I was doing my testing, I found that that has at least 10 mils of dead space, which is a massive amount for a small baby. But one of the worst offenders when it comes to dead space um, is the catheter mount. And if you're adding a catheter mount into your circuit on a small neonate, the chances are they will not ventilate at all well. 
And certainly there has been a number of cases over the years where I'm aware of that this has been used and the child has been completely unventilatable, no matter what has been dialed up on the ventilator. So if you've got a child that's not ventilating well, um, part of your troubleshooting should be looking at the equipment. And you need to consider, one, am I on the right ventilator? Is this appropriate for the child? Have I got the right circuit? Or is there anything unnecessary that's been added into the circuit that we can get rid of and reduce the dead space? And while you're troubleshooting all that, one of the things you should do, like I've mentioned previously, is take the child off the ventilator, handbag them, and if they ventilate nicely, then chances are there's a problem with the equipment that you're using. Okay, moving on. And again, a common thing that's forgotten about when it comes to ventilation, and this could also fit into the airway section, is how easy it is to inflate the stomach with air during face mask ventilation, particularly in a small neonate, and for this then to splint the diaphragm and make ventilation very difficult. So for most neonates that I'm intubating, I will have a nasogastric tube inserted. I will aspirate the stomach before I start, and then I'm going to allocate a person to continuously aspirate that nasogastric tube during face mask ventilation to prevent the stomach becoming distended and splinting the diaphragm. Because if you forget about this, um, and I've seen this a number of times over my career, where babies are completely unventilatable due to that abdominal distension of a full stomach. I'm a big believer that prevention is better than cure, so in general I try to prevent this rather than wait until it's a problem to intervene. And again, if you're struggling to ventilate your patient, check have you got your NG tube in? Um, have you actually aspirated? Because the number of times I look at the first x-ray that's been done, and it's good, yes, there's an esogastric tube in, but there's also a massively distended stomach bubble. So somebody's put the tube in, but hasn't aspirated it. And that big distended stomach can splint the diaphragm and make your ventilation difficult. Okay, so the final thing I want to mention under the heading of breathing, again, relates to asthma. And in particular, the use of intravenous salbutamol. Because this is somewhere that if you follow current guidance in the BNFC, you can very quickly get into salbutamol toxicity, particularly with older children. So if you look at the guidance in the BNFC, it recommends a starting dose for a salbutamol infusion of 1 to 2 mics per kilo per minute. And if needed, that can be increased up to 5 mics per kilo per minute. However, if you look at the adult BNF, you'll notice that the dosing range for a salbutamol infusion is 3 to 20 mics per minute. So it's not mics per kilo, it's mics per minute. So if you were to take a 20 kilo child and start them on the normal starting dose for a salbutamol infusion of 1 mic per kilo per minute, you're at 20 mics a minute. So that is already the adult maximum dose. If you were to do the same in a 40 kilo child, one mic per kilo per minute, you would be at 40 mics per minute, which is twice the adult recommended maximum dose. If that child didn't respond to it and you followed the advice in the BNFC and doubled it up to two mics per kilo per minute, you'd be on 80 mics a minute, which is four times the adult recommended maximum dose, and you will almost certainly get salbutamol toxicity. So in general, I wouldn't recommend going any more 
than 20 mics per minute of salbutamol. So you need to factor this in once you get a child who's over 20 kilos. And in general, when it comes to salbutamol intravenously, I don't exceed one mic per kilo per minute because I don't really feel you get any additional benefit from it. But what you will get is increased salbutamol toxicity. If one mic per kilo per minute isn't working or 20 mics per minute in an older child isn't working, in general, you should probably try something different or add an additional agent in um, because you're very unlikely to get any benefit from more salbutamol. But what you will almost certainly get is salbutamol toxicity. And this was a really common referral. We quite often called the high dependency unit because you get an asthmatic they were concerned about based on their blood gas. Their lactate would be five or six. They'd be becoming more tachypneic. And you would go and listen to the child and the chest would be absolutely clear. The wheeze was gone. But the reason the child was tachypneic is they had Kussmaul's respiration. They were trying to blow off CO2 to compensate for a lactic acidosis due to subutamol toxicity. Generally, these were the bigger children over 20 kilos who were getting more than an adult would. And when you turned the subutamol down to a sensible level or stopped it because the wheeze was gone, the tachypnea disappeared and the lactic acidosis disappeared. So again, prevention is better than cure. If you're not familiar with IV salbutamol and you follow the advice in the BNFC, you will likely get yourself into trouble with these bigger patients. So I would strongly recommend limiting your salbutamol to one mic per kilo per minute and a maximum dose of 20 mics per minute. Okay, moving on to the circulation. And the first thing I want to cover under the circulation is access and what lines you should be putting in on each of your patients. So in general, when we come to pick a patient up, we're looking for two peripheral lines as a standard for most patients. And the reason for that is that should one of the lines tissue on transfer, we can use the other line to get the child safely to where they need to get to um, without having to stop at the ambulance to recannulate the patient. And obviously when the child first presents, getting that initial access can be very tricky. And I think it's widely accepted now that if that's the case and peripheral access is difficult, most people will insert an IO and then look for more intravenous access at a later stage. So that's not something I'm going to have to mention because I think most people are doing that. When it comes to sites for access in difficult patients, um, I think certainly scalp wanes in a small baby are a good place that the anaesthetist will often overlook and the external jugular is a great vein that the paediatrician will often overlook. The anaesthetist will think about it and the paediatrician will think about the scalp veins. Um, when it comes to external jugulars, if you're not familiar with doing them, learn from somebody who knows how to put them in because they're a great way to get a nice big cannula in, which is great for your peripheral vasoactive drugs if you need it and great for sampling. Um, if you are going to put one of those in, please put it on the left-hand side of the neck if possible, leaving the right-hand side of the neck free for the central line if needed. So who should you be inserting a central line on? And in general, I think that's just somebody who needs a drug that can only be given via central line. For example, if your patient needs a strong potassium infusion, or if you've got a patient who's cardiovascularly unstable and you've already started peripheral vasoactive drugs, or who's highly likely to need vasoactive drugs started before reaching the intensive care unit, that would be a good patient to put a central line in. 
Likewise, if vascular access is incredibly difficult and there's no other way to gain access, maybe an IO has failed, that again may be a situation to insert a central line in a critically ill child. When it comes to arterial lines, um, the rules are fairly similar to the central lines. In, in general, if you've got a cardiovascularly unstable patient or a patient who's likely to become cardiovascularly unstable, inserting an arterial line for the transfer to the intensive care unit is probably a good idea. The other situation where I think you should definitely have an arterial line is a ventilated asthmatic patient, even if they are cardiovascularly stable at the moment. These patients are highly likely to air trap once you put them on a ventilator and that sudden fall in blood pressure um, that you will see fairly easily on an arterial line but if you don't have an art line in you will miss and there's a very real chance the patient will actually arrest on you without that arterial line to give you the early warning so in general if you're ventilating an asthmatic patient invasively you should have an arterial line in fairly sharpishly after the intubation so as you can see, for most patients, it's just two peripheral cannulas. And every line that you put in has risks to it. Putting an arterial line in, there's risks of ischemia to the limb. Um, the central line poses risks of infection or clot. So again, you shouldn't be putting unnecessary lines in to the patient if they're not going to need them. And seizures and status epilepticus is one of the conditions that in general, I see a lot of patients with unnecessary lines. So for 90% of the kids that have a prolonged seizure, we're going to extubate them within an hour or two of them arriving in the intensive care unit. So in general, that child does not need lots of invasive lines and all the risks that go with them. If we're, Chances are we're going to bring them to the unit, wake them up and take their tube out. Obviously, if it's not a straightforward child with status epilepticus who is going to need maybe a prolonged period of intensive care and more infusions of midazolam or other drugs to control their seizures that may be a child that you might want to think about more invasive lines but for the majority of them please don't send them to the intensive care unit with a nasal tube a central line and an arterial line when we're going to pull the tube out within an hour of them arriving and take all the other lines out Okay, the final point to make under access before moving on is don't forget about ultrasound. And I think everybody remembers about ultrasound for central lines or for difficult cannulas, but it's often forgot about when it comes to arterial lines. So if you've got a shocked child where you can barely feel the pulse, to me it doesn't make any sense to go and try and do that arterial line by palpation. In fact, if you put the ultrasound on, you're going to see the artery pulsing away on the ultrasound and you're going to have a much better target so if you take your cannula go straight through it transfix it catch it on the way back out it's a very easy way to get a quick arterial line in a shock patient whereas by starting by palpation it's very inefficient it's likely to fail you're likely to waste a lot of time and if you went straight for the ultrasound your art lines generally in first go most of the time Okay, so the next point relates to the shocked child who needs intubation, and that is that it's really important that you properly resuscitate the cardiovascular system prior to intubation and ventilation. So in general, this means making sure your patient has been adequately resuscitated with fluid and starting either peripheral or interosseous vasoactive drugs, making sure they've reached the patient before inducing anaesthesia. 
So there's a wide variety of drugs that you can use in critically ill children and the guidelines do vary um, depending on which one you look at. However, the latest version of the American College for Critical Care Medicine guidelines on the management of septic shock are now recommending adrenaline as the first line drug for children with septic shock. And this has been my practice for years and generally the only thing I do with dopamine is stop it. Um, I think adrenaline is a much more effective drug and when I've got a critically ill child in front of me I want to use the drug which I feel is most likely to work. I don't want to start off with another drug which is less easy to access, it's often locked away in a drug cupboard rather than in every resuscitation trolley in the hospital. And this approach just makes sense to me rather than starting with dopamine and switching to adrenaline if it doesn't work. So. Either way, I I don't think it matters so much what vasoactive drug you use first line, whether you use dopamine or adrenaline. As long as you are familiar with it, know how to make it up in a hurry, and can get it started without any delays, and avoid some of the common mistakes when starting it. So again, I have done a separate podcast on push-dose pressors and peripheral adrenaline infusions. But I'm just going to give a little reminder here on how to make up a peripheral adrenaline infusion because, again, this is something I think you should have in your head and be able to do very quickly. So in general, you want to put one milligram of adrenaline in 50 mils of saline. And that can be um, one of those little lampules of one in a thousand, which one mil contains one milligram. Or it can be your 10 mil pre-filled syringe that you would use in a cardiac arrest And those 10 mils of adrenaline, 1 in 10,000, also contains 1 milligram. So really easy to make up. You either take the little small ampule or the pre-filled syringe and make it up to 50 mils with saline. And importantly, you want to start that at 0.3 times the patient's weight in kilos in mils an hour. So a 10 kilo child, 10 times 0.3, 3 mils an hour. A 3 kilo child, it's 3 times 0.3, 0.9 mils an hour and that gives you 0.1 mics per kilo per minute and that's a reasonable starting dose for a patient with septic shock obviously you're going to titrate that to effect and that can go up or down as needed but the commonest mistake i see people make when they're starting peripheral vasoactive drug infusions or even central vasoactive drug infusions is they forget about the dead space So I know that a yellow cannula that I use has a dead space of 0.1 mils and the little connector that goes onto the cannula has a dead space of 0.3 mils. So if I was going to start peripheral adrenaline on a 3 kilo baby at 0.9 mils an hour and I forget about the dead space of the cannula and the connector, it would actually take 27 minutes before the adrenaline had made its way through the dead space and reached the patient. So most people aren't waiting 27 minutes and the idea of waiting 27 minutes in a critically ill child who desperately needs a life-saving medication is crazy. So you need to know the dead space of the cannulas, the connectors, the lines that you are using. So when you have a life-saving medicine that needs to be started now, you can bolus the dead space and the drug is going to reach the patient without delay. So again, look at the equipment you've got in your hospital that you're going to be using, work out the dead space, save that number away in advance so the next time you're starting a critical infusion that you can get it started without any delay.
because if you forget about the dead space, it can be a massive delay in that medicine to the patient. And you may start the adrenaline infusion, think it's not working, go on ahead and try and induce anaesthesia in that child and they arrest on you. So it, again, this can have absolutely disastrous consequences. Okay, so moving on to disability. And the first thing I want to cover is sedation. So what sedation you use and how you make it up is going to vary depending on what region you're from. And every intensive care is going to have their own preference. For us, it's morphine midazolam. And we have a specific way to make it up, which is in the Pediatric Intensive Care Calculator app, our Pediatric Emergencies app. So what I would say is that if your patient is less than three months, I find that most of the time we can manage with just morphine alone. So your your average child with bronchiolitis, small baby, morphine alone is probably fine with midazolam only added in if you really need it. So for moving most of the patients to the intensive care unit, we will tend to keep the patient muscle relaxed for the duration of that journey. And that's for a number of reasons. Quite often, a lot of the ventilators we use will generally only have unsynchronized modes. And it's also a safety feature in that we don't want the patient to dislodge their tube en route. And that's much less likely to happen if they're muscle relaxed. One particular group of patients you need to be really careful with is the child who's had a seizure. In general, you'll have done a rapid sequence induction with a drug like propofol or thiopentone, which will hopefully have stopped the seizure. But as at the same time as giving that drug, you will generally have given a muscle relaxant as well. And it's really important that you make sure the patient has stopped fitting, because it's certainly possible that you have not terminated the seizure with your induction agent, and that now the patient is muscle relaxed, so the signs of the seizure are being hidden. And the problem with that is that your patient will do just as much damage to their brain. Um, The electrical activity will still be happening, but you just won't be seeing it. So it's really important that you let your initial dose of muscle relaxant wear off completely so that you're happy the patient's seizure has stopped before you give them any more. And it's also, if you can avoid giving them any more muscle relaxant by keeping them deeply sedated, that's a much nicer place to have that patient because you've got a much better neuro exam if the patient isn't muscle relaxed. So again, don't just keep topping up the muscle relaxant in a kid who's had a seizure. The other common mistake that I certainly see made is using volatile anaesthetic agents in critically ill children. And outside the setting of a difficult airway or a difficult to ventilate asthmatic, in general, they don't mix well. And the reason I'm saying that is related to hypotension. And if you give a well child a volatile anaesthetic agent, it causes vasodilatation and the blood pressure tends to drop a little bit. But if you do the same thing in a critically ill child, or particularly a small neonate, it can cause quite marked drops in blood pressure. And these can be really quite harmful. So, like I said, outside the setting of a difficult airway or difficult to ventilate asthmatic, you probably shouldn't be turning this on and you're much better using... Um, intravenous morphine or midazolam if needed because you'll find you get much less hypotension. So although in theory this sounds like a bad idea, I quite often encounter this in practice and the reason I do is out of habit. Um, Anaesthetists in general when they're keeping somebody asleep during an operation will have this running. So when they bring a critically ill child up to theatre to intubate, quite often after they've done the intubation they'll turn on some volatile out of habit 
And outside the settings that we've talked about, the difficult airway or the difficult to ventilate asthmatic, we probably shouldn't be doing this. And in fact, if you are doing this, you're probably creating problems for yourself because you'll be going down the lines of starting um, peripheral vasoactive drugs, getting central lines, getting arterial lines, when all you really need to do is actually turn the volatile off or even better, not turn it on in the first place. The other problem with doing this is that we obviously can't transfer the patient on a volatile anaesthetic agent and we're going to have to move them over to intravenous sedation. And if you wait till we arrive before doing that, it's going to take a while to titrate the patient onto it. And when we move the patient from your table onto our trolley, they're going to wake up. So you're much better not starting the volatile at all, starting the intravenous sedation, getting it titrated so when we come to pick the patient up, they're ready on an established dose that you have titrated. Okay, so the next point relates to the CLAPS neonate, and I've done a whole separate podcast on this topic, but one of the things I find people often forget about is to send an ammonia as part of your metabolic workup when you've got a CLAPS neonate of uncertain cause. And the reason for doing this is that you can get this result back pretty quickly, within an hour in most hospitals. And if you have a kid with high ammonia, the damage it will do to the brain is dependent on how high it is and how long it's been high for. So this is something that you can either rule in or rule out very quickly and make sure you get the child the right treatment. Okay, so the final thing I want to mention relates to therapeutic hypothermia. And up until a number of years ago, we were routinely cooling children to around about 33, 34 degrees C after a significant cardiac arrest to improve the neurological outcome. And more recently, there's been studies showing that normothermia and preventing the child getting hot is as good as the hypothermia. And there definitely has been a shift towards using normothermia in preference to hypothermia in the post-arrest patient. Now, there is an area where this can cause problems, and that is outside the intensive care environment, where the ability to actively control temperature is much more difficult than when the child's in the intensive care environment. They're on a cooling mattress, and they've got a continuous temperature probe in. And certainly in a number of situations, I have seen where the child has come in cold, they've been actively warmed up towards normothermia, and the next thing, they're pyrexic. And that is devastating. So what the studies have shown is that hypothermia is just as good as normothermia. So if your child presents following a cardiac arrest and they're actually cold, provided they're over 33 degrees C, I would advise you not to actively warm them up towards normothermia. And the reason for that is it's too easy for you to overshoot and make them pyrexic. And there's no reason to do this. Hypothermia we've been doing for years and is absolutely fine. So as long as your child is sort of over 33, 34 degrees, leave them cool. And that warming up process can be done in the intensive care environment where you're less likely to overshoot. So normothermia is fine, but you want to prevent pyrexia. And if you warm the child up outside a controlled environment to normothermia, it's too easy for them to get hot. If you keep them cool, that's just as good as normothermia. And that controlled rewarm can be done in the intensive care environment. Okay, so I hope you found that useful. If you have any comments or queries for me, please leave them on the website and I'll get back to you on that. Thanks for listening.